there was this space. I wasn't trying to worry about me and my inspiration and passion and career. It was a space created because I was thinking about someone else. That's when there was enough room for an idea like chocolate to come into play. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast focused on helping you create a more fulfilling career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and successfully make a major career pivot. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you take the brave steps needed to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to explain how he relaunched his 20-year career as a criminal defense lawyer to found his own chocolate company. We'll discuss how your intuition can be more precise than your logic and how to create the space you need to make a clear decision about your career. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll talk about how serving others helped me figure out where to take my own career. Hello from London. As you heard me mention in previous episodes, I've just relocated from Southampton back to London after moving away from the city exactly five years ago, which is when I left the corporate world behind to start my own business. And one of the reasons why we moved away was to trim our expenses while I worked on getting my business up and running. I feel like so much has changed in our lives, both personally and professionally, since we moved away. So it's really surreal to be back here again. When we were last in London, our lives were really different. At the time, I was marketing Haagen-Dazs ice cream for a living. My wife was working for a different institution. We definitely didn't have a 10-month-old daughter, and this podcast didn't exist. I always find it interesting to think about how much our lives can change so much, even after only a few years. Speaking of this podcast, before we start today's interview, I wanted to announce that Career Relaunch has officially turned two years old this month. I launched this podcast back in September 2016 during a talk I was giving in Barcelona, which is where I just was again last week to give another talk. And at the time, I didn't really know how long I was going to do this podcast. I just knew from talking with my clients that sometimes when you've decided to step off the beaten career path, just hearing another person's story of career change, especially their ups and downs, has a way of reassuring you and reminding you that the emotions you're feeling and the challenges you're struggling with are completely normal, which helps you keep going, especially when you're wondering if you're doing the right thing. Now, 47 episodes later, I'm really happy to announce that the podcast is going strong and has continued to gain traction slowly but surely. Just to share a few highlights on the show, since launching two years ago, Career Relaunch has been featured as a top business podcast for entrepreneurs in Forbes, the best podcast for transitioning to a new career in Glassdoor, and a top podcast to help you find a job in Business Insider. Career Relaunch has also ranked in the US and UK as a top 30 career podcast on Apple Podcasts, now has a global audience with listeners in 129 countries, and has featured guests across five continents and eight different countries. And I really wanted to just thank you for listening to this show. Producing each episode is a big time investment for me, and listeners like you help me stay motivated to keep creating more episodes. So thanks so much for subscribing to the podcast. I also wanted to send a special thank you to those of you who have been loyal listeners from the very start when I launched the show back in 2016. I really appreciate your enthusiasm for the show 
And the podcast wouldn't be where it is today without you being a part of the listener community from the very start. When you do a podcast like this, you never really know who's listening or if anyone's listening regularly, but some of you have written to me to share your feedback on the show. Some of you write to me regularly to share your thoughts on different episodes, and I just wanted to say that I really appreciate you taking the time to write. I read every single email I receive from listeners, and it really fuels me. So if you ever want to write to me, I'd love to hear from you, and you can write to me at joseph at careerrelaunch.net. Okay, on to today's interview, where I'm going to be speaking with Sean Askinosi, who left behind his 20-year career as a criminal defense lawyer to found Askinosi Chocolate, recently named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America. Their business model has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and numerous other media outlets. Sean was also named by O, the Oprah magazine, as one of the 15 guys who are saving the world. He's a family brother at Assumption Abbey, a Trappist monastery near Ava, Missouri, and the co-founder of Lost and Found, a grief center serving children and families in Southwest Missouri. He's recently written a book called Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. Now, I was really excited to talk with Sean because he's actually from my hometown of Springfield, Missouri. He's also got such a unique career story and a ton of useful insights on how to create a work life that reflects what's most important to you. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 47. Sean spoke with me from Springfield, Missouri. Okay, hello there, Sean, and welcome to Career Relaunch. I'm super excited today because you're calling in from my hometown of Springfield, Missouri, so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Come and visit us sometime. I definitely need to get back there. I haven't actually been there for a couple of years now since my most recent high school reunion, but I definitely want to get back there. And speaking of Springfield, I got to give a plug to Springfield, which is where I spent most of my childhood. And I was just wondering, Sean, if you could just start off by telling us where you're based there in Springfield and what you've enjoyed most about living there for so many years. We are on Commercial Street in Springfield, Missouri, and it's like a lot of cities, I think, especially in the Midwest, where we have a a part of our community that's undergoing revitalization, development. So we have on this street some retail mixed with the places that deliver social services in our community. And candidly, that is what drew me to the street to begin with, that I wanted to be near where people were who needed social services. And that's what this street is about. I do remember that part of Springfield. And I guess when I lived there, that was definitely an underdeveloped part of the town and not a part of town that got a whole lot of attention. But when I went there a couple of years ago, it seemed like yeah, there was some sort of revitalization that was happening there. So that's, that's very cool. I should probably say to listeners, I moved away from Springfield in 1996 to head off to college. And in the past two decades, I've lived in probably about 10 or so different places. And I have yet to live in a place where people are more down to earth and friendlier than they are back in Springfield. So I definitely miss Springfield. I miss the people there and I miss a lot of the places there. Anyway, I digress. We got a lot to cover today. And I want to talk about your time as a lawyer, your time working in palliative care, and also your current work as the founder of Ask and OC Chocolate. So I was just wondering, Sean, if you could just kick us off by talking about what you've been focused on right now in your career and life. And I think you recently just got back from a trip to Ecuador. Is that right? 
I've been traveling to meet farmers since we started this thing 12 years ago. My trip to Ecuador was cool because I met with one of the farmers that I've literally been working with since the very beginning. I see him every year. His name is Vitaliano. Now I see his family, his kids growing up, and now I'm working with his kids. So I was there just a couple of weeks ago. And then also in the Amazon, which is another new recent origin for us, uh, working with a, a cooperative run by a woman. I love traveling to the Amazon. It's as beautiful as you would think it is. And it's, of course, extremely diverse in terms of ecosystems, but it's a great place for cocoa to grow. So that's why I was there. Well, I want to definitely come back and talk more about Askinosi Chocolate and your work there. But I also know you haven't always been the founder there. And I want to start by talking about the 20-year chapter of your career when you were a criminal defense lawyer. Can you just take me back to that time in your life? What sort of work were you doing at that time? The first part of my practice, right after graduating from the University of Missouri uh, Law School, I went to Dallas and worked for a big firm there. But I wanted to come back home, and specifically, I wanted to come home to practice criminal law. So I spent about 20 years defending really serious felony cases, everything from drug dealers to embezzlement, white-collar crime, bank fraud, tax fraud. I would say, though, that my reputation really was built on the defense of murder cases, uh, they were all very high profile. It was something that I absolutely loved doing for many, many years. And I spent hours in preparation for these trials and preparation for the courtroom. And when I was doing it, it didn't feel like work. I didn't have any other hobbies. I had a family, which I enjoyed. And, and that was really it. I know that you've got plenty of cases where you're helping to defend innocent people, but did you also have your fair share of cases where you had to defend people who weren't so innocent? And if so, can you just talk me through how that sat with you? This wasn't by choice. It just so happened that my criminal jury trials, I did believe in the innocence of my clients. Jerry Spence, famous criminal defense lawyer, said, the guilty people are easy to defend. It's the innocent ones that are tough. Of course, as a criminal defense lawyer, and if you have someone who's guilty, let's say somebody running drugs down the interstate and they're caught with 500 kilos of cocaine in a U-Haul trailer, then my job as a lawyer is to say, okay, well, what structurally happened? What was the process by which this person was stopped? How were they interrogated? And where is the overlay of the Constitution as it relates to that, what we call highway stop? And even if the person is guilty, my job as a lawyer is to make sure that that person's constitutional rights haven't been violated. Why? Because when we make it okay to violate that person's constitutional rights because they are, quote, guilty, then those who are innocent have nowhere to hide. There's nothing standing up protecting them if not the Constitution. So that's the mindset and philosophy that I had through the years. Sometimes it was tough, but I was careful to know the rules of ethics and know where the line was. And I knew what my job was. I knew who my client was in terms I didn't have to worry about who was governing the defense of the case. And I would say that from a personality standpoint, you can't do that job, especially in serious cases where the stakes are very high, like where someone will be killed by the death penalty or may spend the rest of their life in prison. You can't do that if you're worried about what other people think of you or worried about what prosecutors think or if the judges don't like you. 
it does require in some ways a great deal of strength and inner fortitude and especially when people want to kill you and you get legitimate death threats i mean right. these are all things that happen but you just have to uh, realize that you're there because you chose to be there and it's your calling and that's what it was for me it sounds like this was something that you as you put it was your calling and i also know from looking at your book you had a really successful track record as a criminal defense lawyer but then I know when we spoke before, you mentioned that in 1999, you sort of hit a roadblock in your career. Can you just tell us what happened? It was at the conclusion of a murder trial and without going into all the details and they're in the book. But what happened at the end of that trial, which I won, by the way, but I began to notice that something was going on in my body. That is, my chest was hurting and I was having these little mini panic attacks in the courtroom if you were looking at me, you wouldn't have seen it. You wouldn't have noticed it. But colleagues did. And ultimately, what it was is there was this convergence between mind and body. That is, I think my mind was so detached from my body. And fr frankly, part of it may have been the reasons some of the things we were just discussing. After a while, you can only do that kind of work for so long. The need to change manifested itself in my body. And then I kind of had about with some depression and anxiety. I knew that I had to leave criminal law and law, but I didn't know to what. So that's what was really causing me some anxiety because I loved it. I loved it for so long. And when you do that kind of a job and you love it for like a decade or more, and you know you have to quit that job, but you don't know what else you're going to do or can do, that can cause a lot of anxiety. Yeah, that's really interesting. It sounds like there was like a, a physical manifestation of something that you couldn't quite put your finger on. We're going to talk more about your book. But one thing you talked about in your book was how you had a childhood friend who was, as you put it, winning on the outside, but rudderless on the inside. Was that something that you think you were feeling too? I definitely felt a sense of direction. I mean, in my practice, and I felt like the work I was doing was good work, and feel I feel that to this day. But there was a, a shift, some kind of shift inside my body. And as I said, I think that my body and mind began to make friends again, in, in a sense. And, uh, you know, my body was saying, hey, you need to catch up here. You know, I'm going to show you now by putting, you know, making your chest hurt and you feeling fatigued and depressed and anxious, then your mind needs to catch up and get with the ball game. And that's what happened. All I knew was that it was happening and I had to do something about it. I couldn't live like that. It sounds like this then started off the period of time where you spent a few years searching for what you wanted to do next. Can you just tell us about what you did to try to figure that out? I thought that this problem of what to do next, finding my next inspiration, could be solved through research and by just making it happen, just making it work. That's the way I'd won cases for almost 20 years. And I, why would I be any different? My own client, me, and it didn't work. And I spent really nearly five years searching for what am I going to do? I was looking for a sense, almost like a gravitational pull that in some ways either exceeded or at least paralleled the kind of pull that I felt toward criminal law. And I just wasn't finding it. 
it just wasn't, it wasn't happening. And I, so the first thing, of course I did is research, you know, I tried Google, I tried reading books. I read Poe Bronson's book, what should I do or what oh, should yeah. you do with the rest of your life? Yeah, I've read that. And yeah. a great book. Yeah, it's an awesome book. I mean, however, I thought, okay, there's going to be a chapter at the end of this book written in invisible ink that it's going to say, dear Sean, this is Poe. <laughs> right. Here's what you should do. For, here's right. what you should do with the rest of your life. And that didn't happen. And so, you know, I mean, I, I tried, I, I looked at franchises, I looked at businesses, I looked at starting businesses and I, it just was. So I started to get some hobbies. I bought a big green egg and started grilling and baking, then making chocolate desserts. And that's kind of how I started my way into food. I also know when we spoke before, you mentioned you went through a period where you were working in the palliative care department there at Mercy Hospital in Springfield. Can you just tell us a little bit about that phase of your exploration? During this five-year period when I was just so desperate, one of the things that I felt that, that one of the things I should do is volunteer at a local hospital in their palliative care department. And for your listeners who may not be familiar with that, it's essentially hospice in the hospital, people who were dying. And the reason I wanted to do it is because when I was 14, my dad died of lung cancer. He was a lawyer like me, and he had cancer for about two and a half years before he died. And it was just terrible to watch him suffer that way and for the cancer to spread throughout his body. And I just loved him so much and I didn't want him to die. And I was with him when he died. And it was such a desperate moment in my life, just begging God out loud to please not let him die. And uh, he did. And so I thought, you know, 25 years later, and here I am in this search, all worried about myself and what I'm going to do to spend some time with people in palliative care. So I was just volunteering. I just went into people's rooms who often had no one visiting, no family or friends visiting, and these people are dying, some state of dying. I would just talk with them, have a conversation. And then at the end of my visit, I would say, well, one of the things I do as a volunteer here is pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for you? And 99.9% .9 of people who are dying will take a prayer. And I just said, what would you like me to pray for? And I prayed their exact words right back to them, whatever they said. And in those moments measured in seconds, I actually thought about someone besides me. And it was kind of weird. When I left the hospital, not every day, but many days, I'd be walking out of the doors of the hospital to my car, and it was as if my feet weren't on the ground, almost like I was walking on air. What is that? It's joy. And people say, wait, but that's morbid. You were with people, in fact, in some cases, when they actually died. And isn't that morbid? No. And the reason is because of what I say in the book when I quote Khalil Gibran, who says, our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And that's what happened to me. My great sorrow, the heartbreak of my life so far had been my dad's death and being with him in that time of sickness. And then to be with people and think about them and not me for just a little bit was a great joy. I knew that I was at the right place in the right time. Gandhi said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. I mean, I didn't know that quote at the time, but that's kind of what I did. You know, I didn't expect it. Well, it's not an ends justify means sort of thing, but it was during that time in mind. I did that for almost five years, even after chocolate for a little bit. But what happened is this is the paradox during that time of service, not at the hospital, but just during that time of my life, there was this space created that wasn't research. It wasn't talking to people. It wasn't trying to worry about me and my inspiration and passion and career. It was a space created because I was thinking about someone else. 
that's when there was enough room in my pea brain for an idea like chocolate to come into play. Before we get to that turning point for you and when you decided to start asking OC chocolate, could you just give us a glimpse into what some of those things were that people would ask you to pray for? There were people who would say, could you pray two more weeks so I live to my 65th wedding anniversary? Or would you pray that I'm healed? Would you pray that I die today because I'm in pain and I'm ready to go? Yeah, I'm 57 years old. I would say I'm most grateful for those experiences, perhaps of any experiences in my life. When we spoke before, you mentioned a moment when you were driving to the funeral of your mother's cousin. And you did have a moment where you made some decisions. Can you just take me to that moment and what ran through your head at that time? Yes, and thanks for asking about that. I was literally at that cemetery on Memorial Day where my grandparents are buried. And uh, it's a little farm cemetery here in southwest Missouri. I was on my way to that funeral in 2005. Then on the way back from that funeral is when I thought, hey, maybe I'll just make chocolate from scratch. I didn't have a clue where it came from. I didn't know it was in a bean, a ground up bean. I didn't know it grew on a tree. I didn't know where. I thought it was like a chemical that was just melted and poured into a mold. But within three months of that idea, I was in the Amazon trying to understand how farmers influence the flavor of chocolate by how they harvest these beans. You went through a five-year process of trying to figure out what you wanted to do. That There wasn't necessarily this moment when the sky guys parted. How did you know that this idea was the one that you felt was worth pursuing? It was a sense is the best I can say. It was a strong sense. And you're right. I didn't hear an audible voice or anything like that at all. In many ways, it's what I was looking for in a book or looking for on Google. And it was just a sense in my spirit. This is what you should do. Let's switch gears here and let's talk a little bit more about Askinosi chocolate. You mentioned you went to the Amazon within three months of that moment in the car. What exactly did you go do in the Amazon to figure out the whole industry of chocolate? It was a cool experience because I'd never been in what's called primary forest before. And there were farmers there in Ecuador who were teaching about the way they ferment beans after they take them out of the pod and how they dry them and the different nuances in that process that can really have a dramatic effect on the flavor of the resulting chocolate. So I just kept going back to Ecuador. And on that trip, that would have been fall 2005. At that point, I was hooked. I'd already been making some chocolate desserts, but then I was really hooked. I knew I was going to wind down my law practice, which took a year, you know, that you can't just turn out the lights in your office Bye. see you 200 files later. So I had to get a partner and she was awesome and a great friend of mine and is to this day. And she helped me wind down my cases. So it was quite a process. For those listeners out there, Sean, who are interested in starting their own company was just throwing yourself into this Amazon region and just figuring things out as you went along. Was there something about that process that you learned about starting a business that you think might be worth sharing with others who are thinking about maybe going into an area or starting a company in a segment that they don't know a whole lot about? Yeah, it wasn't that I didn't know a whole lot. I knew nothing. And it was beyond that because I didn't have any skills in science. I didn't have any skills in agriculture. I had no skills in finance. I took zero finance and accounting at the University of Missouri 
So what I say, and I say this to anybody who will listen to me, from high school students to people who are in their 60s thinking about starting a business, please, please do this with an understanding of finance and accounting and what the numbers mean for your proposed business idea. I don't care if you're going to be a guitar player in a band. Take accounting and finance because we need financial literacy when we're thinking about starting businesses or even working in a business. If you have this beautiful idea, it's attracting you, it's pulling you, you must do it. But you lack the finance experience, please reach out to a friend or a family member who can help you with this because it could make the difference in the success or failure of your startup. Askin OC Chocolate has been listed as one of Forbes' 25 best small companies in America. And I think one of the things they talked about in the article was about your direct trade model. And I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about Askin OC Chocolate and your products and your direct trade model. We have a laser, laser focus on the quality of our chocolate. We're only 16 people in the company, so we're tiny. But we must focus on trying to be the best tasting direct trade chocolate in the world. And the reason is because we do all these other things, but I want people to buy the chocolate because they love the flavor first and foremost. And over time, if they connect with our story and believe in what we're doing, even better. That direct trade model for us is we focus on the chocolate and then we realize that it's about more than the chocolate. And so it means traveling to meet with the farmers. It also means profit sharing with the farmers. We have profit shared with farmers on every bean buy since I started doing that 12 years ago. And we open our books to them. So this summer, when I go to Tanzania in July, our financial statement will be in Swahili. And they now expect that. And, and we profit share with them. They understand the profit share calculation. And as of last fall, we published that on our website. It's called our Transparency Report, where I publish every bean buy since I started the company, who I paid, how much, how much we profit shared, and what that price is compared to what's called the farm gate price, the world market price, and the fair trade price. So that's about as transparent as you can get. We have this belief that who we are how we behave, how we treat people is inseparable from the resulting product, our chocolate. Now, before we talk about your book, I just have to ask you this, because I know you were talking about these different feelings that you felt throughout your career. On a day-to-day -day basis, how would you describe how you feel now compared to your days as a defense lawyer? I feel more relaxed. I feel more open not as wound up, not as ready to do battle at all times. <laughs> when you're a criminal defense lawyer, you basically, I mean, if and you spend much time in the courtroom, you have no friends. One of these murder cases, I might spend over 2,000 hours preparing for the trial. That's even before the trial. And so you sort of build in these insular practices to shield you from all of the distraction. But over time, that creates a closed off person almost by necessity. Now I want to make sure we talk about your book, which is titled Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul, which you published in 2017. And I was hoping to get your perspectives on three of the topics you touched on in your book. And the first is how you decided it was time to make a change, which I know you talked about before, where you had this sort of stress and discomfort, which manifested physically. 
and your body was telling you that you needed to make a change. And I'm just wondering, aside from physical exhaustion and stress, what other sorts of tipping points do you think people need to watch out for that signal it might be time for a career change? We need to really just kind of take an inventory, as you mentioned, uh, physically. You know, how do I feel? What's causing these feelings? Is it my job? Is it the work that we're doing? Is it that I'm done with it? I'm just tired of it. And then I think there are other things to look at. For instance, are there other things driving this decision? Are they financial? Do you have commitments with your family that this current job is unable to meet? Or in some cases, there can be a draw and a sort of message uh, that we receive that is, I'm finished with this vocation that I had at this time in my life, and now I see this next step for me. I just think it requires a lot of introspection, and I would encourage people to get out of Google. Step away from the Google search box. The answer isn't there. It's not even in my book. But if someone listens to your podcast, Joseph, or maybe they just read a couple of pages and they, they're inspired by a sentence or a paragraph in the book or just a few seconds of our conversation together today, then put it down and begin a practice of reflection and introspection that is not dependent on other people necessarily, but just in your own mind I think that's where the answer is going to come. You know, should I stay in this position? Is it what the Buddhists call right work or not? I do believe there is a lot of value in sticking it out and making that a discipline. And the reason I say that is because when people make the leap, I want them to be all in. I want it to be wholehearted. And I'm not saying, look, I'm the one who jumped off the cliff and figured out how to build a parachute on the way down. I get it. And I, I support that. But I encourage people to get as much input as they can right before they jump. One of the other things you talked about in your book, as you're trying to figure out your professional calling, you talked about the importance of not doing endless research, which I think you were talking about when you're speaking about not going on and trying to Google everything. What do you think is important about not doing endless research? which I think is an interesting perspective coming from someone whose career, I guess, was yeah. was built on that very principle. So it's because it's essentially an endless feedback loop. You'll never stop. And that is what I mean by the paradox of choice. And it paralyzes us. It's a bottomless pit of choice. And I bet we could see there's probably a billion searches of what should I do with my life in the Google search box. Look, I love meditating. I read books on meditating, but it doesn't make me a better meditator. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do research once they say, oh, I want to make kombucha. I know that's what I'm called to do. And I'm going to, I'm not saying don't then do research on kombucha recipes. I'm saying just go into a quiet room, literally and figuratively and start thinking let the ideas bounce around in your head to the point that it's actually uncomfortable. We in this world today are uncomfortable with silence and solitude. We are no longer familiar with it. And it's painful to sit and listen to the voices in our head that are so loud. And we need to find a way to calm those and understand that the balm 
is not going to be found in a book or from a Google search. Yeah, it's a good reminder that you got to give yourself some headspace and some permission to just have a little bit of downtime, which I'm definitely not very good at doing myself. I'm not either. I mean, I, I, but I think it's an important practice to just start even in small ways. Absolutely. Now, finally, Sean, before we wrap up, you also touch on the fact that after you left law, you describe in your book, you went through this challenging period of having escaped from your old job without a new dream to pursue yet, which is where I think a lot of listeners find themselves. What do you think was most helpful to you in getting through that daunting period between leaving your law practice behind and finding a new path? I practiced law up to the very end. In fact, for a very short period, I would be in court maybe in the morning on a meth lab sentencing, and in the afternoon, I'd be making chocolate. So I did have both legs, you know, I had one leg in one world and one in the other. But I think the most important thing during that search, during that time, was what we've talked about, which is these two things. One, where is my heartbreak, my sorrow? And is there someone who needs me that I know of that I can serve? And does it relate to my heartbreak in my life? And if so, then the greater the sorrow, the greater the joy, as Khalil Gibran says. I think that's the most important thing. And it's counterintuitive. I'm saying when we're struggling and your listeners, they may be frustrated and saying, look, I know I want to leave. I know I want to do something else. I don't know what it's going to be. I need to go do this research. I need to go talk to these people. I need to attend this conference. What I'm suggesting as a possible alternative is to roll up your sleeves, find someone who needs you and serve them without expectation of anything in return. So I want to wrap up, Sean, by talking about your social initiatives there at Askinosi Chocolate. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the charitable work you do in other parts of the world for students in need? We have had these school lunch programs for about eight years in places where we buy beans in Philippines and in Tanzania. And the way that worked was we have a program called Chocolate University that we started when we started the factory to engage neighborhood kids in our business. And the way this started in the Philippines is I noticed the kids were malnourished and talking with the principal of the school. And she talked about the severe malnourishment in this school. And so what we did is we decided that the PTA, and there's a very active PTA there, and, and I found that in Tanzania as well. And they made a product. It's called Tablia. It's a hot chocolate product that's traditional to the Filipinos. And they put it on my container of cocoa beans in a separate box. We sold it. So we sold each unit, and we still do now on askinosi.com, to people for 10 bucks, and they get 10 servings, and that feeds 220 kids. So what we do is we take the, you know, all of the sales proceeds, not profit, all of the sales proceeds, and monthly give it back to the school where the PTA and teachers manage this school lunch program, sourcing food locally. And we do the same thing in Tanzania, but with rice from the PTA. And our little 16-person company has funded over a million meals in the last eight years to kids with zero donations, all 100% self-sustaining. That's one of our programs. And as I mentioned, we have these school programs and the high school program where it's very competitive for kids in Southwest Missouri, juniors and seniors in high school to get into our program. Half of them are scholarship. The other half are private pay. We raise the money for these kids. It's $4,000 a kid. And they 
spend a week on the Drury University campus near our factory and learn about our business and Tanzania language, culture, history. They go home and pack and then meet me at the airport and we take them to Tanzania. So maybe when you were at Kickapoo, you might have been in Chocolate University and, right. uh, and had this kind of experience. And, you know, and one of the things, and I think you're a great example of this. I mean, here you are, you know, living internationally, you have an international practice and we're looking for students that we believe in which this experience will be a catalyst for them in their future careers. And you mentioned charitable work that we do. That is what it is. But we don't look at it as as that. We've had this dualistic philosophy in charitable philanthropy work that really stems from this corporate social responsibility silo in companies that really started by risk managers, otherwise known as lawyers in big companies, that has now turned into CSR, which now has turned into this. And what I'm saying is don't silo it. Find ways in which this can infiltrate the entire company. The good works are just part of being a good business. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that sometimes people think of quote unquote charitable work being done by, I don't know, NGOs or nonprofits, but actually there's a lot of great work and in fact, some of the most impactful work is being done by businesses like yours that, that are actually profitable and are commercially oriented, but they're also serving a, a greater need and a greater good. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for taking time out of your busy day to tell us more about your life, formerly as a criminal defense lawyer, how you found clarity during your transitions, and also a peek into the great work you're doing there at Askinosi Chocolate. We'll definitely include a link to your book in the show notes, which I would highly recommend to listeners. And just wanted to wish you the best of luck with your ongoing work there at Askinosi Chocolate. And the next time I'm back in town in Springfield, I'm definitely going to try to stop by. Please. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Sean's thoughts on the importance of listening to your intuition, serving others, and not getting too caught up in endless research. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to talk about what happened when I myself started serving others when I was feeling unsure about my own career. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to thank Grasshopper for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Grasshopper is the virtual phone system designed for entrepreneurs and small business owners. It works just like a traditional phone system, but it's all managed online or by phone, so callers can reach you anytime, wherever you are. As a Career Relaunch listener, you can get $50 off your first order. Just go to trygrasshopper.com relaunch. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to pick up on what Sean was saying about the bottomless pit of analysis and research you can get stuck in when you're trying to figure out the next move in your career. And I really like this idea about the tactic of shifting the focus away from yourself toward instead serving others, which I thought was a really interesting way of approaching it. And this kind of reminded me about where I was about six years ago when I was living in London and in the thick of working as a brand manager on a global brand team, starting to realize deep down that I didn't really want to be marketing products for the rest of my life. And I was feeling really stuck like a lot of the clients I work with, during that confusing period of time between realizing you don't like your current career path and figuring out what you want to do instead. I've actually found this to be one of the toughest stages of career change because you know you're in the wrong place, 
but you don't have a viable alternative in mind. And although I didn't do it knowingly at the time, I kind of followed Sean's advice about taking the focus off of myself, trying to analyze and research my way to an answer, and instead just allowed myself to serve others tapping into some of the skills or natural interests I had at the time. And in my case, I'd always noticed that one of the things I enjoyed doing the most in the workplace was mentoring other more junior colleagues, especially those who weren't on my immediate team. And I think the difference when I was mentoring someone who wasn't my direct report was that I was kind of freed from that formal obligation that comes with being someone's direct line manager when you're responsible for things like performance evaluations. So one of the things I did was to formalize a mentoring relationship at work I'd had with someone who wasn't on my direct team, but was just someone I enjoyed coaching at the time. I talked with my manager about getting the green light to have it added to my formalized responsibilities, and I absolutely loved doing it. I found it so energizing and gratifying. Then I found myself getting involved in more coaching activities at work. And eventually, this planted the seed to me getting my coaching certification, which then led to me starting a coaching practice outside of work, which then led to me starting my own career consultancy. And after listening back to this conversation with Sean, I now realize that in some ways, the answers to what I should do with my life instead of what I had been doing came to me during this exact time when I found an outlet for some of my natural interests, when I was serving someone else. So if you find yourself in that unsettling stage when you know you're not happy with your current work, but you don't know what you'd want to do instead and you haven't gained any further clarity from doing more and more research, maybe you could find a way to focus your energies elsewhere. And one place to start is to do what Sean said, to roll up your sleeves and find some way to serve someone else without any expectation of anything in return. And if you don't know what that is, Think about finding one new way you could just make use of your natural strengths, a specific skill you've developed through your work, or just a persistent interest you've always had. And when you engage in this activity, the skies may not part for you immediately with the answer of what you should do with your life, it probably won't, but it may just uncover an unexpected clue which could lead to another unexpected clue and another until you come up with at least a better idea of where you could go. This takes me to a quote from Gordon Hinckley. The best antidote I know for worry is work. The best cure for weariness is the challenge of helping someone who's even more tired. One of the great ironies of life is this. He or she who serves almost always benefits more than he or she who is served. So my challenge to you is to think about finding some way to serve someone, ideally in a way that relates to your unique skills, strengths, or interests. It doesn't have to be a major time commitment or formalized activity. It can be something simple. It can be something small, but just some way to help someone else out in a way you also find gratifying. If you can carve some time out to do it, you might be surprised where it ends up taking you.
Before we go today, for you aspiring business owners listening, I'm going to be giving a free talk this upcoming Thursday, September 27th in London on working with virtual freelancers to brand your business. During my talk, I'm going to be explaining how the digital freelance economy works, the various platforms where you can find and hire affordable virtual talent for your branding tasks, and some simple free tools to help you manage virtual teams. I'll be hosting this talk at the Pop-Up Coworking Space, which opened earlier this month in Covent Garden, sponsored by Epson Printers. There's going to be over 40 free talks there, so if you're in the area and you want to see my talk, or if you just want to have a creative space in central London to work with some free Wi-Fi snacks and drinks, I hope you'll come by and say hello. You can register for my free talk at careerrelaunch.net slash coworking talk or find more details on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash career relaunch. As I mentioned at the start of today's show, Career Relaunch is now two years old. So if you've been enjoying the show and you want to help this show continue to reach more people around the world, I'd really appreciate you leaving me a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the link to do that at careerrelaunch.net slash 47, where you can also find a summary of all the key points we discussed today. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 47. In our next episode, I'll be featuring a former pilot who decided to live in an RV to save some money and eventually launch his own aviation venture. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community, and a special thanks again to Sean Askinosi for sharing his story with us today from my hometown of Springfield, Missouri. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song, I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll see you next time. 